and welcome to our first episode in our Real Estate Conversation series. My name is Molly and I form part of the marketing team here at Collier Bristow. Leading today's conversation is Anjana Dyer, an associate in our commercial real estate team. Anjana will be covering five things to be aware of with rent deposit deeds. Thanks, Molly. Yes, I'll be talking about rent deposits, covering five key areas that may crop up during the drafting and negotiations of rent deposit deeds. The areas that I'll speak about are the landlord's reasons for withdrawal of sums from a deposit, in what circumstances tenants can get the deposit back, the interest accruing on a deposit, dealing with top-ups, and finally, what to consider on a sale of either the landlord's or the tenant's interest in the lease. There will be some technical discussion included, which will no doubt be familiar to property lawyers, but hopefully there will be some general useful information for landlords and tenants too. So just to start things off, I'll briefly go over what rent deposits are and the main types of rent deposit arrangements that exist. Okay, so as a general introduction, what are rent deposits and why are they important? So a rent deposit is a monetary sum that's paid to the landlord by a tenant as security for the payment of the principal rent and performance of the tenant's lease covenants. Usually a rent deposit deed allows the landlord to withdraw against the deposit in certain circumstances and also sets out conditions for the deposit to be returned to the tenant. It's an attractive form of security for landlords because the money is instantly accessible in the event of a tenant breach, so it also does away with the need to take legal proceedings to recover any owed payments or otherwise enforce the tenant's obligations under the lease. And what types of rent deposit structures are there? There are different forms of rent deposit arrangements. They can be structured as a trust or as a charge, and sometimes they're held by stakeholders who are independent third parties. The main focus of this podcast is on the typical charge arrangement where the deposit money belongs to the tenant but is paid over to and charged in favour of the landlord who then deposits it in an account of its choosing. The landlord will return the deposit money less than the authorised deductions in certain circumstances and this is one of the most common rent deposit structures employed in commercial lettings. So what would be one of the main things to consider in a rent deposit deed? Well the parties would want to carefully consider the drafting regarding the circumstances that allow the landlord to make withdrawals and the process for making withdrawals. So the following items should be included as the main permitted deductions. These are unpaid annual rent, unpaid insurance rent and VAT on those sums and also bank charges on the rent deposit account. Very commonly though the following are also included as permitted deductions. These are unpaid service charge, unpaid outgoings and VAT on those sums, costs, losses and expenses suffered by the landlord due to a breach by the tenant of its covenants in the lease and any losses which may result from forfeiture, disclaimer, surrender or other early termination of the lease, even if those costs are incurred after the lease has come to an end. So tenants might resist additions to the permitted deductions or look to qualify the wording somehow. So, for example, with costs arising from a tenant breach, they might seek to limit them to reasonable costs and expenses or those that are properly and reasonably incurred, and that's to stop the landlord from deducting disproportionate sums from the deposit. Generally speaking, the final list of reasons for withdrawal in the rent deposit deed may depend on the bargaining strength between the parties. In terms of the process for withdrawal, tenants may well require landlords to give notice to the tenant before making a deduction, particularly if the trigger event is one that the tenant can take steps to remedy. However, a landlord will probably argue that giving notice is an administrative burden and could lead to the tenant challenging the withdrawal if it alleges that the notice procedure has not been correctly followed. Some rent deposit deeds may permit deduction without prior notice, as long as the landlord informs the tenant promptly after the deduction as to what sums have been withdrawn and the reasons why. Most rent deposit deeds require the deposit to be topped up after the deductions have been made and the landlord will have to notify the tenant that this is required. So arguably then, it's not difficult for the landlord to include details of the withdrawal at the same time as requesting the top-ups. And I'll be coming back to top-ups again later in the podcast, as this is another important area that the parties should consider. So those are the typical circumstances for withdrawals. What might be the circumstances in which the tenant can get the deposit back? 
So again, the grounds for repayment of the deposit money are likely to be a matter for negotiation and these should be clearly set out in the rent deposit deed. Obviously, the landlord will want to retain the deposit money for as long as possible and the tenant will want it returned early. So some normal triggers for repayment include a lawful assignment of the lease within the meaning of the Landlord and Tenant Covenants Act 1995, otherwise known as the 1995 Act. So this means an assignment which would release the assigner from liability under the lease if the lease is a new lease for the purposes of the 1995 Act. And very briefly, this means a lease granted on or after 1st of January 1996, subject to certain provisos under that Act. A landlord might try to qualify this trigger event so it doesn't apply where the lease permits assignment without landlord's consent, or where consent is given only if the assigner gives an authorised guarantee agreement, otherwise known as an ARGA, for the incoming assignee. In these instances, the landlord may prefer for the original rent deposit to continue, in the first case because it didn't have a chance to assess the covenant strength of the potential assignee, and in the second case because the outgoing tenant will have obligations that will continue under the ARGA. If a tenant accepts the extension of the rent deposit to cover the ARGA period, then care has to be taken by the landlord to ensure that the tenant's liability under the rent deposit deed ends at the same time as the tenant's liability under the ARGA also comes to an end. This is to avoid falling foul of the anti-avoidance provisions in Section 25 of the 1995 Act, which might make the arrangement void. Where the rent deposit deed is supplemental to an old lease, the outgoing tenant will remain liable under the terms of the lease and the rent deposit deed following the assignment. Normally, though, even in these cases, the tenant will usually ask for repayment of the deposit on the assignment and the landlord would need to factor this in when thinking about what additional security, if any, to request from the incoming tenant. Some other grounds for repayment might include expiry of the lease term without any holding over by virtue of statutory security of tenure under the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954, and also early termination of the term by agreement. This would include surrender or merger or exercise of an option to break, but not forfeiture or disclaimer. So in both of these two other triggers, the landlord could seek to make repayment of the deposit money conditional upon vacant possession being given. This may though be resisted by the tenant as giving vacant possession is onerous in view of various case law on the subject. Another trigger for repayment may include solvency tests of the tenant that sufficiently reassure the landlord that the tenant is financially secure and can meet its obligations under the lease. For example, the deposit money may be repayable where the net profits of the tenant in three consecutive years following the rent deposit deed are equal to or exceed a multiple, which is usually a three times, of the rents reserved by the lease. This is known as the net profits test or, for more obvious reasons, the three by three profits test. Occasionally, a net assets test of the tenant may be used instead, or even less commonly, simple repayment of the deposit after expiry of a defined period of time if there have been no tenant breaches. And what about interest accruing on the deposit? So it might be easier to overlook the issue of interest, especially when interest rates are so low. But a prudent tenant would probably want to ensure that interest earned on the deposit money is payable to the tenant under the terms of the rent deposit deed. Usually a tenant would be paid interest at the end of certain periods and the landlord may agree to pay out quarterly or annually just to minimise the administrative hassle of accounting for it. Uh, just to note on interest as well that a landlord may also need to think about whether it needs to account for tax on the interest in conjunction with its accountants or other tax advisors. And you mentioned top-ups earlier. What is the relevance of those? Yes, yeah, so it's important to think about top-ups for various reasons. Rent deposit deeds may specify a minimum level for the deposit. This means that any deficiency following a withdrawal should be made good by the tenant topping the deposit back up to the required level. Typically, rent deposit sums are equal to between 6 and 12 months of the annual rent under the lease, and it's possible that following a rent review, the landlord might also seek an additional top-up so that the deposit reflects a six or 12 monthly portion of the new annual rent following its revision. VAT is another reason why top-ups are important. Many rent deposit deeds provide for a top-up of deposit money if the rate of VAT increases or if the landlord exercises an option to tax after the date of the rent deposit deed. 
Just one practical point to note, though, is that if a top up is required after a withdrawal following a tenant breach, this could mean that the landlord is waiting a long time for the deposit to be restored to the minimum level. Obviously, if the tenant has breached the lease because it's in some financial trouble, it's feasible that it may then have delays in topping up on the rent deposit. And finally, what should the parties consider when dealing with selling their interest as either landlord or tenant? So the position does differ depending on which party is looking to sell or assign their interest. There are some things to consider when a landlord sells its interest in the reversion of a lease. A key point is who is bound to perform the landlord's covenants in the rent deposit deed following the sale. Where the rent deposit deed was entered into in relation to a new lease, i.e. one that's covered by the 1995 Act, the rent deposit deed will qualify as a collateral agreement under Section 28 of the 1995 Act. So as a result, the landlord's obligations in the rent deposit deed will bind its successors unless they're expressed to be personal. This is irrespective of whether the assignee enters into a direct deed with the tenant agreeing to comply with the provisions of the rent deposit deed. However, it's important to note that under the 1995 Act, the outgoing landlord of a new lease will also remain liable on the covenants in the rent deposit deed unless it obtains an express release from the tenant. Section 6 of the 1995 Act imposes a strict statutory procedure for obtaining a release. Another way to address the release issue is to have a direct deed between the new landlord and the tenant whereby the new landlord would agree to comply with the terms of the rent deposit deed and the tenant would expressly release the outgoing landlord from any obligations. Another more indirect way of dealing with this issue could be to try and negotiate an indemnity for the outgoing landlord in a deed of assignment with a new landlord in respect of any breaches by the new landlord of the rent deposit deed. Another point to note is that while obligations under a rent deposit deed do bind a landlord's successor, where rent deposit deeds incorporate a charge by the tenant, the benefit of the charge does not automatically pass. So again, typically a deed of assignment to address that point would be desirable from an incoming landlord's point of view. Where the rent deposit deed is supplemental to an old lease, the landlord's obligations do not run with the land and therefore do not bind the assignee of the reversion. And this principle is derived from case law from 1986. And so what about when the tenant sells its interest? So when it comes to a tenant assigning its interest, it's important again to look at the age of the lease. When a rent deposit deed is entered into in relation to a new lease, the rent deposit deed again qualifies as a collateral agreement under Section 28 of the 1995 Act. So as a result, the tenant's obligations in the rent deposit deed will bind the assignee of the tenant's interest unless they're expressed to be personal. It's important to know that unlike the outgoing landlord, the original tenant under a new lease is automatically released from its obligations under the rent deposit deed when it assigns. This is unless it has entered into an ARGA for the assignee and the rent deposit deed secures performance of the obligations under the ARGA. The incoming tenant will also be entitled to the benefit of the landlord's obligations in the rent deposit deed without having to enter into a direct deed to address that issue. Where the rent deposit deed is supplemental to an old lease, the tenant's obligations under the rent deposit deed are considered unlikely to bind an assignee of the reversion. And this is by analogy with the 1986 case law. So a well-informed tenant may be on alert for this uncertainty and may look again to try and address this issue by getting an express release containing the assignment documents. Okay, great. That's a lot of ground covered in five areas. Yes, so this was a bit of a whiz through just to give a sense of the typical clauses in rent deposit deeds and the main things that do crop up in negotiations. I should say that, that there is a great deal of case law, statute and guidance on rent deposits and commercial parties should consider these together with their professional advisors. But hopefully this podcast gives a picture of some key issues when providing or requesting rent deposits as security in landlord and tenant relationships. So thank you for joining me, Molly. The last thing to say is thank you all very much for listening to our first real estate conversation. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in this episode, please reach out to me. You can find contact details on our website or in the description of the podcast on whichever platform you're using.